One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, you're very welcome along to this week's edition of the group chat. I am news correspondent at Virgin Media News, Richard Chambers. I'm joined, as ever, by fellow news correspondent Zara King. Hello. And political correspondent Gavin Riley. Hello there. Guys, we're starting with uh, news. Huge developments in the crime world over the course of the week. Jonathan Dowdle looks set to be given a new identity and relocated to another country after he agreed to provide evidence relating to the 2016 Regency Hotel shooting in the trial of Jerry Hutz. The threat against him for turning state witnesses is currently described as severe and he's been taken into protective custody along with members of his family. He will be assessed for inclusion in the state's witness security programme. Now, for more on what witness security is, how it operates and the history behind it, we are joined by author and journalist Nicola Talent of The Sunday World, also the brains behind The Witness Podcast and The Crime World Podcast. Which maybe gives me a little bit of an edge on the witness protection. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is your forte, Nicola. Listen yeah. to the witness in his own words, like do that after you listen to this, because it is honestly, like I mean that, it's truly excellent work. Recently winner of podcast awards, yeah. if I'm not mistaken yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a bit of a work of passion now, I have to say, the witness and, uh, you know, bringing that story first to a book and then to a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. It's so rare that you get somebody out of that world who's so articulate so able to tell their own story, own it and understand it. And that's what Joey O'Callaghan was and is. And in a way, what I said, it gives me a bit of an edge. Like I have spoken to a few people who've been in witness protection, but particularly Joey's story, I think, is, uh, you know, shows the starkness of it. Mm. It's a really weird well, what's the what's the history behind it there? Well, for people who don't know, how many people would have gone through this? Where did it all get started, really, in this country? In this country, yeah. it started um, when Veronica Guerin was murdered. Mm. And um, prior to that, it had started in the US and in Italy to try and take down the mafias because they needed to basically anybody who was going to give evidence against them was going to get shot dead. So they needed to keep them alive to put them in the witness box so they could give their evidence. And actually, that is really what it is about here as well. Uh, so it started then and Charlie Bowden and Russell Warren were the first two uh, people into it. For those who don't remember, they were part of John Gilligan's gang and they gave evidence in the special criminal court against members of the gang and who were charged with various uh, different things in relation to her murder. Now, their evidence didn't go down very well mm. in that court. Um, and it, Charlie Bowden in particular, it was you know, the, the the judges believed that he would have been willing to say anything to get himself off the hook. And this is the problem with it. And in a way, this is where Jonathan Dowdall is sitting, because on Monday I was in the courts and we first of all heard the evidence during the sentence hearing because he has pleaded guilty to a lesser charge sure. yeah, than right. murder. So we heard that he was going into this programme and what a sacrifice this was going to be to him. And his family had to go in as well. The, you know, the threat he was going to be under. Um, and, you know, then we go along to the monks trial and it's adjourned because of this. Mm. Um, so Jonathan Dowdall, the fact is that the murder charge against him was dropped by the state yeah. 
hours after we, we heard that he was going into witness protection. Is, is that what it effectively amounts to, that it's effectively plea bargaining, that you agree to turn witness in exchange for a lesser charge and you accept that and then sometimes. go away? Mm. So sometimes they, they will appear to do this bargaining behind the scenes with the director of public prosecutions. The witnesses that are preferred are the ones without anything to gain who have come along the likes of Joey like O'Callaghan, yeah. who believes that something, you know, that a life shouldn't be taken by another human being and they want to do the right thing. So they are obviously clearly the better, are seen certainly as a cleaner witness, maybe. Um, Dowdall, that murder charge has been dropped. Um, he's currently, his, his legal teams are looking for a suspended sentence for him in relation to this lesser charge that he's pleaded guilty to. And he has convictions. And we heard the details of those convictions in during the sentence hearing. Quite a serious conviction for kidnap and um, uh, he kidnapped this guy who was trying to buy his motorbike. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Very strange. Never got my head around that. Yeah. Somebody was trying to buy a motorbike off him, like from Tundeal or something. And um, they were negotiating. He invited him for dinner. Right. Has that ever happened to you? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, And I've never invited someone to dinner in my house if I'm trying to sell anything. Might be Dundeal, but it might be the buy-in side. Could be anything. Yeah, yeah, just to be clear. (laughs) But this happened. This man was invited along to his house for dinner. He was brought into the garage where uh, Dowdall and his father, who's 63, um, basically tortured him, waterboarded him, threatened to take his fingers off with the pliers and kill him, told him they were members of the IRA. And uh, yeah, so that's a pretty serious conviction they both have. And they both served lengthy sentences for that. So that will be there as well, mm. you know. And so like when you say like, you know, he's pleaded guilty to the last year charge, is it a guarantee then that he won't have to serve prison time or would he have to serve prison time before being put into witness protection or what are the logistics? Well, that's exactly what happened on Monday morning during that sentence hearing. His senior counsel, Michael O'Higgins, was asking the court to consider giving him a suspended sentence because Mm. it's very messy trying to go into witness protection if one person is in in prison and then the rest of the family, because we were told his wife and his four children aged between 11 and 25 are also going into this witness protection, along with his father, who has multiple health complications as has Dowdall himself. So basically the legal team were asking the courts, give him a suspended sentence and, um, you know. Effectively allow him to assume a new identity immediately. Well, that doesn't happen immediately. What happens is under witness protection, the witness is kept alive to get into the witness box. Yes. They give their evidence. And once they've done that, they're signed off the programme. They're helped relocate to a new country, usually English speaking, they're given new identities, social security numbers, whatever they need. And they will essentially, the likes of, say, Dowdall has a house, they'd sell that, the state would sell it, and he would be helped to get an equivalent property wherever he okay. goes. Okay, so so the, the country that they're relocated to, so you mentioned that they're English speaking, it'll be on the same sort of par. Like, I mean, you'd, you'd yeah. use the money for the house that he's sold, it would be the same value then in England or Australia or wherever else he ends up going to. And if somebody was without assets are, you know, on social welfare, they're moved and they're put on social welfare in that country. They're mm-hmm. helped into that system. Gotcha. And is that because you they know? don't want to be seen to be paying witnesses or, or for them yeah. to benefit from giving evidence? That's they can't be seen, the state can't be seen as as doing that, you know, as mm. as buying evidence as such. Um. So, yeah, but, you know, it's it things happen behind the scenes and 
But are you right? The, I'm right, like the getting onto witness protection isn't a guarantee, is it, Nicola? Like, I mean, there is a rigorous process and even like the psychological assessment around it and everything. Not everyone's cut out for witness protection. No. Now, in Ireland, we know very little really about what happens. Mm. And um, certainly Joey O'Callaghan, who I do know a lot about, would be very critical of how he went on to the programme. He was very young. He believes it wasn't explained to him properly, really what was, you know, his future was. Um, and he says he got no legal advice, independent legal advice. What age was he again at the start? Of he was 19. Yeah. Mm. That's a huge change for that age of your life. Well, I mean, it was, he went into it on his own. Mm. And when he was relocated, he was on his own. I don't think he'd ever paid a bill on his own or anything. And he was literally sort of, he feels thrown into the total unknown mm. with mm. a lot of trauma. As well. And what was really sad for him was that he had a great like love and affection for his mum, didn't he, and his sister and stuff, and he was very close to them and like trying to cope with without them after sure, everything. He was supposed to never speak to them again. I mean, yeah. that's what that program mm. is, is about. Is that one of the yeah. conditions of it that like not only do you don't get to basically anyone. adopt a new skin, yeah. you you completely cut all ties. You don't mm-hmm. even drop a social phone call at Christmas to say how you're doing. You're totally. Is that high risk? I guess that's what it's supposed to be. You know yeah. what I mean? Right. But like human beings don't always follow rules. But especially when you talk about someone's kids going into the programme, like how do you explain to children, okay, maybe the ones in the twen- their 20s will get the significance of it, but like how do you explain to kids kind of 11 and onwards, you know, we're totally, your life is being uprooted and being totally changed. It's a big adjustment. Huge. To put a whole family in like that. And they have especially. to lie. Yeah. Going forward. They're given a, you know, a new backstory that mm-hmm. they, they have to learn sort of off. And, how does and that, they come up with that? So does it, does it not, like I know that there's nothing, you mentioned that there's, it's very hard to understand how any of this works because nothing's ever, like, there's nothing official down there. You don't look at a statute no book or whatever. Book, yeah. mm. So but, how yeah. do they come up with the stories and the backstories then for? Well, see, it is a very secretive programme and, um, you know, there's no accountability here in this country because it's not wrapped in any legislation. Yeah. It just operates. And anytime you ask any questions about it, you're stonewalled completely. Um, so I don't really know. I only know from the people I have spoken to, um, many of whom have reached out from various places to, um, you know, to give a little bit of, to have a little bit of a chat or whatever. But um, this, the backstories are made up by cops working on the programme and they're given to, they're not really very, um, certainly the ones I've heard, they wouldn't really be that clever. Sophisticated. No. Mm. No, that it's a fairly, fairly routine, black and white. You're from this area. You've moved for work, and it's it's as basic as that. And like crucially, Nicola, the people who want to maybe you know get to the people who are in witness protection, is the, do they generally try very hard to track down these people? Or does it? I mean, it obviously depends case by case. But would there generally be a witch hunt for these people, or you know, could they maybe go about their lives for ten years and then all of a sudden, when they least expect it, you know, someone could track them down? To like, my knowledge, nobody has. Or do people kind of move on and forget about it? Or nobody has actually been killed. Within the programme. That is either on the programme, there have been threats to life while they're on the programme. And when they're off it, you don't really, they kind of become ghosts. So you don't really know. It's very difficult to say what happens to them or if anybody comes after them because they don't communicate or contact and their old identities are dead and gone. And they aren't, I mean, part of the rules of the programme appear to be that you never come back here looking for help again. Like once you have got your help once, that's it. Mm. And if you come back, you're, you're not going to get protection or... To what degree are the countries that they go to uh, aware of these new people being parachuted into them or do they have much of a collaboration in helping to sort them out with passports or birth certs under their mm. new identities or all the paperwork that they need? Yeah, like they do help. Like we all, we we would work ourselves with other countries and we probably have 
people here that are, mm. you know, yeah. coming from somewhere else and maybe in witness protection or have been in witness protection and are here relocated under new identities. We send ours to places and they'll send theirs to here. So, yeah, they all work together. But the world has just become a little bit like since it was set up, you know, people travel more for a start. Mm. Uh, obviously, there's the social media thing. I mean, you can't go new identity. You can't really change your face. Mm. It's pretty hard. Um, and then if you have an entire family and you have to change all their faces, like a lot of but surgery. But it must make it then very curious just on a practical level that if you do show up in another country and hypothetically you're in circumstances like Jonathan Dowdles where you're moving with a partner and four children and a father and seven of you show up in a brand new jurisdiction and you're trying to pass yourself off as being this three-dimensional person that has a history and a life story mm. and there is nothing online at all to give any backup to that. You've got no fleshed out LinkedIn mm. with job and no Facebook or whatever. No, no, no yeah. Facebook, no Twitter, no Instagrams. Mm. Unless it you must... start like a fake Facebook and you build it up over a couple of weeks or something. I don't know. Is it must make it much yeah. more difficult then to, to, to do it in, in the 2022 era where people have to have an online mm. background. It absolutely has to like it. I mean, isn't that the biggest red flag when you can't find it? Absolutely. Oh my God. If, you, if somebody you, you no, found anywhere. Is an yeah. absolute oh, I mean, it's total walk away like from this person. Away. Away. So, um, no second date there. Mm, yeah, I mean, that's curious. Um, I actually don't know if they're sophisticated enough that they are building those backstories for them. Possibly they are. Mm. Possibly I mean, they it, are. it would make sense. To but have you can't put their pictures up on the internet. Yeah, no matter Special what. recognition these days is, as well as is, is, is yeah. Well, even, actually, even search engines do like when yeah. you're looking around. And for even it. when you think about like CCTV cameras, and like we're all caught on camera probably like a dozen times a day, and we don't even realise it. Do you know what I mean? But sure, if you go out anywhere, I mean, I don't really like getting photographed when I'm out and about and stuff. But mm. like, you do have to dodge it because yeah. everybody's got their phone out and everybody wants to show the world where they are at a particular point in time. So I mean. Yeah. You'd be um, you'd be a weirdo, wouldn't you? You'd be very strange. You'd you'd have a very strange paranoia you'd be living with if you were on the program and you couldn't be photographed. You had no digital footprint. Maybe your story has a few holes and it's hard to lie all the time. It mm. is. I mean, it's it's, it's like strange. your whole podcast. So just for anyone, who, if you haven't listened to it, I mean, you really I can't stress enough how much you have to listen to it. But like, I suppose, as you said, Nicola, like the thing that was so like magnificent about the podcast to be totally honest with you was the fact that you really felt like you were hearing a side of the story that you'd never heard before like all of us have covered we're, we're not crime correspondents we've covered court cases we've covered murders we've covered and you never ever get to hear that first hand account from a young person who started out in a milk round and was was groomed into this kind of life of crime and and like the ramifications of it and the fact that it completely changed Joey's life um like, how is he coping now? Sort of like, you know, after the tapes ro finish rolling and, and you're kind of, you guys are essentially kind of friends, really. You've been, you've yeah. worked together oh, with yeah. colleagues and friends mm. through all of this. And um, he remains in witness protection or it's kind of off the program or whatever, but He's it's off the new program. He, 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 he has liaison officers and, mm. and he has, mm. he, he's very much learned how to realise. And I think it's a good lesson for anybody that you are really your first and last port of call when it comes to security. Yeah. And like, you can't really rely on anybody else. You have to rely on yourself. Be aware, you know, um, look, he probably sits with his back to the wall. He mm. probably doesn't go places that he might be recognized in. He probably has a restricted enough social life. Um, you know, the threats to people like Joey O'Callaghan who've given evidence against people are real threats. They're not perceived. They are real. And yet they can't 
overdo the paranoia about it. So they have mm -hmm. to live day to day and for the rest of their lives with this real threat. So, you know, going around the house, locking the doors, making sure they're locked a second time, cameras, security alarms, uh, you know, that is actually necessary. Mm. But then you have to learn to also live with it. I often thought that, um, you know, we've probably forgotten now and we don't like talking about it, but at the beginning of COVID, when everybody realised that this threat was very real, it was out there and you had to change what you did. Mm. It's a little bit like that. And then that those changes become normalised mm. mm. and, and you do them as a matter of. As a routine. How yeah. many Joeys are there out there? How many people have been into the programme? Many people are, are living in other parts of the world. There isn't even like I an official record like, of that. There, there's an, there, all I think that they seem to give out is an idea of what the spend is from the programme. Right. But there's no detail on that. So is that spend, you know. Is it 1.2 million a year? Well, like that, that's is that the budget that's assigned for it, but they never spend the whole. You'd wonder what bit of it that's assigned for, or or if that is, you know, that I I keep reading that that they haven't spent, and all of a sudden the last year they spent one point. That's very little. Mm. One point two million is. We consider it, if, but if it is all one-off costs, if it is just sorting someone out with paperwork and a house, and it, then it's one-off, and you're not meet, you're not meeting their upkeep afterwards, then maybe actually it's quite a lot to you know set up new identities for. I do know that certainly in the past people have been, you know, they have been given money by the state. They have like. Um, so I don't know. Again, it's it's very secretive and um, there's no accountability whatsoever. We've no rights to ask any questions about it. And if we do, we're stonewalled. Mm. What would the benefit of that be? Like, what would do you think that's the way it should be moved into to try and, you know, make sure that it's a process that isn't open to abuse or whatever? I think that, yeah, I think that is very important that it isn't open to abuse. And that's really why some questions should be answered, obviously, without putting people at risk. I mean, I don't think they should be answering questions like where do people relocate or, you know, and be putting forward maps on these things. <laughs> like, yeah, pinpoint them or, you know, there's it's it's obvious the kind of questions they shouldn't answer. But there are some questions that should be answered, I think, um, to safeguard people because they really do go into it and 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 they disappear like in every way. And we've no idea. I think what I learned from Joey's story was that um, I feel that there should be some aftercare. Mm -hmm. I think there should be a little bit of aftercare and I think people should be should be given. Um, they obviously don't want everybody coming back going. I didn't like it. Can it yeah, can I'm it? done with that. You, yeah. can't, you can't have that situation. But I think that they also have to realise that everybody who goes into it is an individual with individual needs. And well, Joey had a lot of trauma. Like did. he had an awful lot of trauma mm. when he went into the programme. I mean, and even like trying to trust therapists, probably and knowing who he could really open up to was probably mm. quite difficult. I mean, how do you, you know, go into witness protection and then also sort of, you know, maybe go to a therapist and start dealing with, you know, the sexual abuse trauma and all of those things that he would have gone through because you know, how can you tell that story when you're not meant to be that person anymore? Like a lot of that is, you know, kind all of, of that big is the problem, Joey, like, you know, but he eventually actually was he did a year in the Priory and okay. um, was healed as much as possible. Mm. And he lives now um, with the mental illnesses that he has. Um, you know, he has they've certainly identified some of the traumas he suffered while with Brian Kenny mm. were the cause of them. But, you know, he has they're medicated, some of them, and 
then, you know, he continues with his therapy and stuff. But it took a big battle to get that, you know, that priory time. And it has saved his life and it has made living with this constant threat more viable for him. Yeah. Yeah. So really, I suppose in summary, it isn't really like you're sailing off into this, the sunset in this this situation when you are put into this programme. Certainly I don't think that is the case at all. Now, maybe some of them, maybe the ones who haven't phoned me <laughs> are having a ball. I don't know. But uh, certainly anyone I've spoken to and there's been a few are not in good places. Like, okay. it's not easy. Right. Well, Nicola, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us about it. Really fascinating conversation. And yeah, yeah. thanks so much for really joining us in the group chat. So much. Yeah, thanks, Nicola. Nice to be here. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Nice, Nicola Talent. Oh, she's fascinating world. It, it um, is. It's so fascinating. Like I, I'm so piqued by the idea that there is just this kind of legal void where you just mint up all the paperwork and identity mm. for someone and just buy them a one-way ticket to somewhere and go, right, that's it. You're on your own. And actually the fact that they are on their own when when a lot of them have been through, even the idea of maybe like testifying into insensitive cases could be like traumatic enough, but even having yeah. been through the prospect of being being involved or groomed into a world of crime, the idea that you're just packed off and Well, Joey no O'Callaghan was very much on his own, but I suppose in this instance, this will be like an entire family going into witness protection, which is a little bit different. Mm. I mean, it's hard to know whether it, is it more of a comfort to have the people you love around you or is it going to be far more heartbreaking because they're also going through this with you. more um, difficult as well. I'd imagine it does make it much more difficult mm. because when you have multiple people who are all having to go through the same, the effectively, the, the, effectively the same yeah. charade mm. uh, and try and keep everything watertight. Yeah. I do think it's interesting, I suppose, how it's, the, the difficulties of a change because of social media mm. and 4K and 8K cameras yeah. and face recognition. Mm. You see, yes. even this thing, I was only just thinking about it when Nicola Glass was talking. cameras in them. No, the, 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 yeah. there was this thing, some lad made this AI robot which matched stuff from uh, Instagram uh, influencers, what they posted uh, when they posted photos. And he cross-referenced it with like public cameras and CCTV to sort of find when that photo was taken. Oh, and like, there was an example okay. taken of this influencer who posed for photograph in Temple Bar and they were able to cross-reference CCTV, the live cam there, yeah. and basically find that from a crowd in Temple Bar, this one guy doing the pose for the photograph on Instagram. Uh, and it's just the ability that you can do that uh, actually sparked a bit of a conversation. Is like here, yeah. nobody's ever really in private anymore. Do you, do you remember the controversy a few years back though? And that, granted, this was in slightly different circumstances because I think they limited it to people who were marked as being your friends on Facebook. But there was that phase where Facebook would auto tag people because they thought they were being helpful 
by recognizing mm. people in photographs that you posted up and being like, oh, that's uh, that's Zara King who's gone untagged in Gavin Riley's photograph there. But even and your phone does that. It'll say, yeah. like, oh, view more photos of mom or whatever, you yeah. know, and it'll show you because facial recognition. Your iCloud or your Google Photos will do that for you. Yeah, yeah. no, someone sent me a link yesterday to an article from Silicon Republic actually just about. Um, Meta smart glasses. Had you heard of these? No, these are the, um, these are the ones that they've been advertising in newspapers and uh, about how how smart cameras will work inside glasses and that there'll be a little yeah. Light so in it's the saying uh, Ray Ban stories glasses record footage. So basically, oh, yes. you can like you know I think they're voice activation. You can ask them to go into record. So they look like regular sunglasses. You see this? They look like regular sunglasses, yeah. but they have like little cameras. James Bond Jr. It's a, it's it's a like bit black. It's really invasive. They gave it to like rewind back. Recorded. Well, I think the, the point is that the, the light is supposed to be on. This is why you've actually seen some newspaper ads recently from Meta showing you how smart glasses are going to work because they've actually been mandated by some regulators to take out full page ads in papers to go in case you're wondering what it is that you're seeing. If somebody has smart glasses, the, the camera isn't working unless there is a small pinprick light on. Light. So, so it's know. to assure you what it means. Some kind of, some on a really bright day, you might see that light. Like, I still well, would not be okay with somebody like filming me on their like, yeah. glasses. Like, yeah. it's a bit One annoying. thing about it uh, that Nicola was talking about is the lack of any sort of paper trail on this, mm. the lack of any real accountability on this because it isn't something that's underpinned by legislation. Mm. It's effectively run off the books. Uh, by the guards and I suppose that's really interesting as well because she raises those questions of accountability mm. and sort of why even what money is spent on it. Yeah and even the question mark about whether some of the money is just for in informants in that sense or whether it is to try and help them um, find a new identity. There is often said um, every year that there's always the humorous thing in the Public Accounts Committee in Leinster House where they're going through the state accounts for the year and they come across the Secret Service. And the joke is, oh, we could tell you what it is, but then we'd have to kill you. Uh, but it, it's widely understood that the what is defined as the Secret Service budget for the Irish government, because Ireland does not have a Secret Service, or at least if it's so secret, even those who run for it. Like, that's what they want you to think. Like, yeah, yeah. It's like Fight Club. You they can't don't know that it's there. Um, seemingly, the Secret Service is widely understood to be a budget for informants to, um, to allow them to be some, there is some pot of money that has to be given some label which exists just to, to reward people for any intelligence that they bring forward. And maybe that is in its own way part of the process by which all of this is funded. But it is in a, in a really mysterious legal cloud, isn't it? It, it is, is really. Yeah. I think the work that Nicola does is so important though, isn't it? Like, I mean, we talk about journalism a lot on this podcast, but just, you know, the fact that she has that direct link to, to so many people like Joey O'Callaghan and that she's able to offer people that insight. I mean, mm. it's just something that like we've never seen before. And like we hear so many stories about, you know, what goes through the courts and, and the public side of crime. But actually, when you really see what people, you know, like Joey O'Callaghan. Especially the reverse of it, yeah. yeah. the reverse of it. Like, like we we talked about it at the time when it first came out her podcast and like thinking that we just had never heard that account of it like that you know we'd never heard the story of that young per person that was groomed into that life of crime and, and the journey through into witness protection so the work she does is just so important Gab I was going to ask you just in relation to the political ramifications mm. of this story this week because um, you know clearly you know Jonathan Dowdle, a Shin, former Sinn Féin councillor now. I mean, it's is there a political knock-on for, for the party on uh, this? Or how does, what, what have they been saying about the, it? There are on two fronts. Uh, firstly, because um, although their view has evolved in some recent years, um, Sinn Féin's stance on the very existence of the Special Criminal Court mm. has always been something which is politically thorny. Um, Sinn Féin historically have opposed the idea of there being non-jury courts like this. In the past, it was because most people being tried before these courts were Republican paramilitaries. And Sinn 
Sinn Féin had sympathy for their cause and so therefore didn't agree with the idea that they were tried without a jury of their peers. Um, so Sinn Féin's stance on the, on the Special Criminal Court, which has evolved a little bit, they now abstain every year when the vote comes up in the dole and whether to renew it, is now coming under renewed focus. Um, one thing which is slightly thornier in this instance um, is... Something of an open question as to um, exactly what Sinn Féin were aware of at the time that Jonathan Dowdall resigned his seat on the City Council and mm. therefore his membership from the party as well. Because uh, in other instances where people have left Sinn Féin and they have alleged bullying as Jonathan Dowdall did at the time, Sinn Féin have been somewhat, well, you know, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Sometimes they can be very distant. They can say this was a effectively a toxic relationship and we want to hear no more of it. Mm. The statement that they published at the time of Jonathan Dowdall's resignation could not have been more flowing and effuse and positive and grateful for the time that he had put in and lamenting the fact that he was no longer going to be a part of their family. And I think it is only in hindsight now that we know exactly the degree to which Jonathan Dowdle was engaged in really unsavoury stuff at the time that questions are being asked in, in not too explicit a way because of the sensitivities of there being an ongoing court case around it. But there are certainly some live political questions for Sinn Féin to answer about the degree to which they were aware that not everything about Jonathan Dowdle was what it seemed. It's that question, Richard, about that awareness. Like, what is a reasonable expectation of a political party in terms of background checks and their members and their representatives? And like, what, you know, what do what do we consider to be, you know, should we know everything about all our, these public representatives or, you know, how how much can you know, really? Like, it's, it's, I think it's very, very hard to know it's what you can answer, know because you can't, you can't expect to be able to go through for something as as reasonably low level as the membership of a local authority, like there are a thousand county and city councillors mm. across the country. So w- what is a fair degree of mm. prior scrutiny and how much, like how much you know, previous yeah. do you need to go into for, for something as at the bottom level of the chain of government, if you get me. Mm. On the other side of politics over the last week, then Gavin, um, the Ardesh was on for Fianna Fáil was, yeah. uh, last weekend. Um we talked a lot about how the fact that Fianna Fáil always seemed to be looking for their identity. Identity yes. crisis. Yeah. With the, with the, with Did they find it that weekend? <laughs> if, if there was an identity to be found, it was uh, more about not necessarily what they are or who, what they stand for so much as who they aren't and who they oppose. Um, there was a quip made in the press room that um, Fianna Fáil's solution to the housing crisis is to allow Sinn Féin live rent-free in their heads because um, there was some amount of mentions of Sinn Féin um, both on, on the stage throughout the Friday evening and Saturday afternoon where the panellists and ministers were consistently talking about things the government is doing. Oh, and by the way, Sinn Féin are full of empty rhetoric and broken promises. Feels very Fine Gael to me. Um, but there's, there's a little bit of that, but the, it was more well, about that's, the... That's how all our dishes work, though. Like all uh, our dishes, they do all, all, all descend in, and that's where all the biggest cheers will come from. That's where the mm. biggest energy shift will come uh, from because you're identifying... Here's the opponent. Here's, the, here's, the boot, here's our yes. reason for doing yeah. what we're doing. Um, and, and that was certainly the case as well for uh, Norma Foley's speech. She spoke before the Taoiseach and obviously her speech is directed at the people in the room whereas the Taoiseach is speaking not only to the hall but also to people watching it at home on TV. Mm. The biggest cheers that Norma Foley got were certainly for the rounds of, of Shinner bashing as as they might see it. Um, but uh, you, you're right to a point, Richard, that of course it is always about that, that when you're trying to, you know, rile up your party faithful that you talk about your, your common enemies and the like. But... Um, given how much Fianna Fáil is trying to talk about the work that it's doing in government mm. uh, and all these um, massive crises that it's trying to tackle and which it insists it is making good progress on, you would, ostensibly they should have more positive things to talk about than to be consistently talking about this other party that they profess is only trying to be like a fly swatting them around the face. Well know? then if that is the case and all they are able to talk about 
in many ways is Sinn Féin plus some of their track record of last two years I'd say that they don't have much of an identity found yet well, they're still scrambling down the back yeah, of that sofa for yeah, the two euro coin they, that they, is their identity they, this is it they, they did adopt uh, a revised version of their party constitution which has 12 aims and objectives and apparently that is only the third time in 90 years of Fianna Fáil history that they've done that so that was an attempt to figure out what it is that they stand for but a lot of people would look at those 12 objectives like you know fair employment and good education and they would find it to be common with a lot They're of other parties. That, yeah. Yeah. And there wasn't much of a bounce for the 11 billion cost of living budget for Fianna Fáil like it didn't seem like they got the credit maybe for that in the well, this was last week. the other thing. There were two other telling things about um, that weekend uh, at, at the Ordes when the Ordes was on. Firstly, that I have been at Ordes and, and party conferences before where a poll noticeably changes the mood almost within minutes of it getting out. I've been at Ordeshna where a party um, is going into a leader speech and suddenly they find out they've got a few points of a bounce in the poll and suddenly they feel like, yeah, we're going somewhere. Or, and yet then they'll say, we don't, we don't watch polls, we don't listen yeah, to polls. All, <laughs> they all say that. They all say that. They all say that. It's only a poll, we don't care about but, the poll. But, 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 poll. but they all read them and they'll all retweet a poll when it's good for their party. Mm. Um, so they, sometimes they can really change the mood. And there was absolutely no change in, in the hall, which I found quite telling in its own way because it was pretty evident that Fianna Fáil being in the high teens or the low 20s, depending on which poll series you look at, mm. they, they now just seem to be not like accepting in an enthusiastic way, but they've kind of made their peace with that's where they are for the foreseeable. And the other thing I thought, which is very telling, which was that uh, in the course of that day when Fianna Fáil were on stage and ministers were talking about what they were doing, um, it was very difficult not to be distracted by the YouTube live stream of the Ireland's Future event taking yes, place on the other side of Liffey, yeah. which, which seemed like it was, even if it was only enthusiasts all talking to each other about their chosen cause, that being United Ireland, that it seemed like there was maybe more of a sense of something fascinating worth watching on the other side of the Liffey. A little bit more was. exciting when you have, you know, your James Nesbitts and you have, you know, cross-party mm -hmm. thing. You have Mary Lou, you have Leo Varadkar, Colomini there. Uh, Matt Cooper there as well and the lights went out in them so I mean stuff was happening there yeah. even, even if it was glitchy yeah. and stuff was and mad stuff was happening stuff was happening Yeah and even if you aren't uh, like obviously there's a lot of people who are perfectly entitled on the islands to, to pursue a United Ireland as an active goal and it's something that they want to happen and they think that it's a solution to a lot of woes and they're entitled to profess that it was also just fascinating almost as a kind of an academic experiment even if you are detached from the question just to see how they'd all go about it and the different ways in which the different speakers were proposing that you would try and accommodate unhappy unionists who still want to cling on to a British identity and how you'd make them feel comfortable in, in a new Ireland which is not in any way linked to um, the island across the water that it was just fascinating just to hear all that being openly spoken about Yeah mm. I know the next event is on in Belfast in the Ulster Hall uh, which is traditionally linked to unionism and I know there's potential plans for protests there mm. uh, mm. from loyalist groups but I see Arlene Foster has also pushed together sort of a counterbalance to the Ireland's future group and it's about building up the relationship between Northern Ireland and the UK called Together UK so we're going to have dueling, dueling think, tank, think tanks and, and events over the next while. Uh, well, I see that Sinn Féin are also organising their own sort of uh, public gatherings as well. And they've been looking for a citizens' assembly for a long time. So what they could do is book the same hall at the same time as Arlene Foster. And lo and behold, you actually might have uh, both communities represented in the same room. And maybe they might be able to talk about each other to each other and not around each other. Very quickly, Gavin, before we wrap up on politics, they had social media classes at Fianna Falls Ardesh. Mm. Did you see anybody... Anybody noteworthy trying the, to get tips on how to do it? Was this the like how to be more human on camera? How to be more human on camera, how to take a good uh, portrait, um, how they, I, did, I did not see many high profile uh, pursuance of, of that, I have to be There's honest. There's a few who need it. No, no comments. <laughs> Hello. <laughs>
Hello there. <laughs> if you no know, comments. if, if you, you know, know, you know. If you know, you know. Text in your suggestions for who these people might be. <laughs> now, one thing which has uh, captured a lot of the world's attention, but perhaps not enough of it, uh, has been the protests in Iran. I know a number of listeners are actually on to us, mm. asking mm -hmm. us to explain what exactly is happening there. Uh, something rather extraordinary is happening there. Is is quite simply what is happening. Uh, it is quite remarkable, I suppose, to see what we have seen over the last, it's almost a month now since the protests began. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and daily we're getting new footage of yeah. women and girls and girls in particular is kind of what's the most interesting. Uh, which is. is one of the most sensitive things about it. It might be helpful actually for people if we sort of literally go back to square one to try and explain That's what I intend the, the, the to do. Yeah, yeah. Of all of this. So yeah, bring us back for those who are completely uninitiated. There is one name that they keep hearing in connection with this but they might not understand why she's become this, yes. this figurehead. You might well have seen it as a hashtag. It's Masa Amini. So she was a 22 year old girl. She died in Iran after she was arrested by the Morality Police which is an actual institution in Iran, I know we like, and sometimes in conversations you say, "Oh, the morality police will, will come after you for this, that, and the other." In Iran, there's a morality police. Mm. Uh, she was arrested on September the thirteenth for reportedly not wearing a hijab. Um, three days later, she died at the age of twenty-two. Now, the Iranian authorities claimed that she had a stroke, fell into a coma because of a heart condition, and there was video footage, but people would argue it was heavily edited, and there was gaps in that footage. Yeah, her family as well, very, very stridently coming out saying uh, she was beaten by police, yeah. and this is the reason why she died. And it is since then um, you have had dozens and dozens of eyewitnesses of that incident came forward as well, but you have sparked thousands and thousands and thousands of people both in Iran, in Iran and around the world as well, who've come forward to protest this in a very evocative mm. way. Mm. You've had young girls in classrooms uh, removing hijabs, uh, turning away pictures of the Supreme Leader, uh, effectively telling him, you know, F your dictatorship. Mm. Mm. This, is, this, is, this is different. To, to put it into context for people, because they might not realise why this is so sensitive. So the, the full name of Iran is the Islamic Republic of Iran. And theirs is a country in which the teaching of their, their religion is not just a matter of what you do if you're an adherent of the religion. It is effectively prescribed as being the law, yeah. which is what makes mm. this so so sensitive. It's, it's intertwined just... into, into the culture there. Mm. I think what's interesting about this era as well is that we have seen multiple times over the last... 10, 20 years. Yeah. Outbreaks of protest about things. But it feels different though. Like this this is something which is sustained all the way through. Yeah, it has. And actually I was saying to you, when, even when we were in New York actually, there was like huge protests outside the UN about all of this as well. Like it's not something that is just happening in Iran. Like it's a global, it's a global movement. There's definitely a feeling of change here. I think that, you know, to see young women taking a stand in Iran is a really, like this is a big moment. Mm. Because they're very much a, marginalised is maybe the wrong word, but they're very much a suppressed community, mm -hmm. maybe is the right word, in that country where they are, everything about their dress or appearance effectively is prescribed. Mm -hmm. And for there to be such open disregard for that now does feel like it is a very significant move because theirs is a country in which, as was evidenced only a month ago, where you can end up paying very, very significant consequences for not going by what the religious book requires you to do. Yeah, I think that's something which a lot of the protesters have found as well, is that we have dozens and dozens and dozens of them who have now died. There has been a clampdown of sorts, but there hasn't been an outright crushing of what has mm. become some sort of a rebellion, uh, whatever way you want to phrase this. And that's something which, you know, noted observers of the situation in Iran, like, you know, the BBC, formerly of the BBC, John Simpson would have mm. said that previously you might have seen 
the Supreme Leader and the Revolutionary Guard in Iran effectively stamp this out, mm-hmm. root people out of their homes, disappear them from their families. But that hasn't happened here to the same degree, or at least what has happened in terms of the clampdown hasn't been enough to stomp this out because all of the, and it is it's interesting that the, it, this is again a youth driven movement because that's what a lot of the protests in Iran traditionally have been like Iran is one of the most educated societies anywhere in the world mm. they have incredible second and third level education in terms of the people who go forward in terms of graduates who go around the world so this has always been a very very clued in uh, education system mm. but for them not to stop even though the boot has been put down onto them is I think something worth watching. Is that maybe, uh, maybe we're overreaching here, but is that like a symptom of a world in which you now have such free communications? Like I remember uh, 10 or 11 years ago, the last time there was something of an uprising in Iran, they tried to turn off Twitter because Twitter was how a lot of these public demonstrations were being organised. And there was a little bit of a worldwide pushback where everyone in the world was encouraged to write in their location as being Tehran mm. because mm. then it was impossible for the Iranian authorities to filter out who was actually an instigator of this. But we're, we're in a world now where it's very difficult to control anything centrally like that. So if you've got a, a Telegram or WhatsApp or any other number of, of messaging apps that it's much easier to get the word out or to, to share evidence that other people are rebelling and that you should too. Yeah, but again, Zara, they have tried. The internet has been mm. cut in many instances in Iran as a result of this because that's where when you see these movements take hold, the internet is often the easiest place for these things to, to, to sort of capture the imagination. Yeah, well, it's a place for the conversation, as you say, to take place and for people to have a voice or a platform for it. But, um, I mean, the thing about it is, like, what happens next? I mean, what, what changes are coming? Or, or is, is there a change coming is the question. Well, the leader of Iran says no. Uh, he has responded this week to the biggest protests in Iran, as we're saying, in years. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has uh, condemned the rioting, he's, he's, as he's described it as. Uh, he's accused the United States and Israel of planning the protests and of seeding demonstrators into the country, that these are effectively actors rather than, you know, women who are tired of being policed by the Marazhi police. Stop winding up, are you? Um, basically. Yeah, he's, he described the death of uh, the woman in question effectively as a, a tragedy, but not something that needs to be carried on by by other people. But whether or not that does hold up, because again, I don't think over the course of, you know, the three or four weeks since it happened, that there's been a drop off. In fact, if anything, it's probably ramped up. Was, yeah, was over the last two days, I think, Zara, I've seen more of it, I think. Yeah. Been, yeah, and I feel like we're hearing more about it. It's become more... Like it's definitely more predominant in the last couple of days. I think it's getting yeah, getting strong. Uh, and we've spoken in other contexts in the last couple of weeks about strength in numbers and how if you feel like there's enough people there that you are willing to do things that you would never have done in isolation. And that is pretty evidently, I think, what, what's happening here that you know, it took one person's bravery to do something. And then once there are enough others doing it, they, they feel like yeah. they are emboldened to do so. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll keep an eye on what happens in Iran because it is uh, quite an extraordinary story. I'm sure we'll be back. We can get someone on next week from Iran, actually. We'll yeah. be good. Try we'll, we'll, we'll look yeah. it out. Do, I think, yeah. Um, but turning to matters a little bit closer to home, Liz Truss uh, has given her speech to the Tory party conference, her party's conference uh, in Birmingham. Uh, here's what she walked out on stage to. We need to get Britain moving. We cannot have any more drift and delay at this vital time. Uh, that is the immortal voice, Heather Small of M People. M People's un- moving on up. An unimpressed Heather Small by all accounts. Yeah. Heather Small's son uh, is a Labour Party councillor. Uh, 
Oops. diametrically opposed <laughs> to Liz Truss and her government. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The premise there, of course, being that the, the Conservative slogan right now and the slogan for this um, event is get people moving. So it's all about moving. So Keep they went, Britain, they went or get for, Britain moving. They went, went for the most lazy moving song they could think of. And if it's a 90s But pop, I do love pop. that the lyrics, so somebody tweeted the lyrics <clears throat> to moving on up, but it was like, you've done me wrong. Your time is up. You took a sip from the devil's cup. You broke my heart. There's no way back. Move right out of here, baby. Go on, pack your bags. Pack your bags. Like, no. The lyrics, <laughs> even though I get where she was going yeah. with the chorus, I feel like... You know, the first li- verse. I was just going to say, like, it's, like you, it's a bit you turn on the tune, and within 15 seconds, you've been told to get like on out of there. The tune, you have to. Yeah. You know, right. Head of small and them people. Did they never had a number one? In the never, never had a number one in the UK. Robs. Neither right. did the Lighthouse family, who we were looking at the same. We're no the way. Same the bracket. Lighthouse family did not have a number one. No, no that to me is less surprising than M people. I disagree, but the the go pack your bags motif is something which a lot of Tory MPs are kind of openly. Angling for Liz yeah. Truss, which is astonishing still because she's only a month in the job. It's just, how is she only a month in the job and this is what's happening? I mean, it's kind of outrageous. Uh, and th- this is where, where things get really um, tetchy because there is now, be- do bear in mind, by the way, that Liz Truss never had the support of a majority of MPs in the first place. She got into the job because she won over the grassroots, but more MPs wanted Rishi Sunak, her opponent, than, than her in the leadership election. But they've already changed leader once since the last general election when the public gave them this massive majority to go into power and govern for five years. So it's manageable once maybe to change leader and to to go on and have a little bit of a a pivot. But the question that they now face is, well, if we get rid of her, is it at all tenable that you would change leader twice without at least getting public backing for where you're going? Which means that if the Tories want to stay in power with the majority that they've got, the only person that they can afford to ditch Liz Truss for is the guy that they elected three years ago with no. that giant stonking mandate. Don't say that. I don't know. Don't say that. Think I know it's that being Boris think Johnson. He won. He definitely, I, I, I <laughs> no. think it's a, an open secret he wants the job back, whether that's in no, the future. Can we, just, can we be realistic here now? Is this actually a tangible possibility? Well, I mean, look no, at the opinion polls. Not no, okay, immediately, not, no. Okay, okay. But if you look at the opinion polls, um, evidently the, the, the last thing that the Tories would want now is an election because they're basically looking at like a 1997 style, Tony Blair comes in, 400 and something seats and they're in opposition for a decade. And they, right. they clearly don't want that. So how do you cobble things together? You either have to just make your peace and get behind Liz Truss or you bring back the last guy, which means that they are now in this situation where despite openly and like even within her own cabinet, openly trashing the stuff that she's done and undone in the last 10 days, that they're kind of attached to this sinking ship. There's nothing I enjoy more in politics than when a government is in full meltdown and you are having people openly in the media sledging each other, mm. calling each other spoofers, saying that people, you know, the cabinet colleagues need to shut up mm. and get behind the leader. It's a beautiful yeah. thing. And even like, if the Fianna Fáil are Ardesh, right, there, there might have been a struggle, but at least they were all on the same page. Like this, this was the conservative version of the Ardesh. And they're all leaving in what's supposed to be this moment where they leave in like the sense of emboldened unity. And they're all like stabbing each other in the front, not even in the back. They're moving on up, Cav. They're moving on up. <laughs> Pack up your bags. <laughs> Returning before we go to probably um, one of our favourite group chat oh, ever items. Hands oh, down. Been waiting like, for this for so long. To be honest with you, when I look back on the group chats 2022, it's really hard to beat Wagatha Christie in terms of best podcast episode we ever did. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Maybe when we're finished, it'll be a best bits compilation, which will just be a just montage be of, of on yeah. that one, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, unless you've been living under a rock. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not going. We're not going. We're not going to recap. No. We're Rebecca Vardy, who we all remember, lost, lost mm. bad 
She's now been ordered to pay she Colleen. She took the case, remember, yes. as well, yeah. by the way. She took the it. claimant yeah. in this case, the person who instigated the whole thing because she thought her reputation Not could be salvaged name. rather than being as comprehensively well. trashed as it was by the case. How could she have thought she would have cleared her name, Richard? Like, how did she think that? Please. We, we had the discussion at the start at the start when it was all kicking off about whether or not oh maybe publicity would be worth it definitely not no and monetarily it has now been proven it would want to be an awful lot of publicity to cover the bills she's facing now wouldn't it she has been ordered to pay Colleen Rooney's legal costs following the libel trial and the bill could reach for Colleen Rooney's side of things about 1.5 million pounds she must pay 90% of Rooney's costs and the first payment of 800,000 pounds must be paid by the 15th of November and wow, that's pretty short not all that's the 1.5 for Colleen Rooney and the legal and the court side and her own, and her her own, own side. as well the bill in total there could be about 3 million quid now, can I ask you a question though because you know more about this than me like is that like pocket change to people like the Vardys and the Rooney's not. It's, it's not. No, it's not. What's their, no. their husband's are in uh, Well, like, I, I don't have it. Maybe Richard could pull it up while we're talking about it. I mean, Jamie Vardy is. Jamie Vardy is, is like. I'm not trying to be un, un, unfriendly to the guy, but like he's past his footballing peak. Like he's in his in his like mid 30s now. So like he's only got a few more years of playing and earning at a Premier League level, and then after that, it's off foreign. Maybe if he wants to continue his career, where the money isn't as good as what he's getting right now. Right. So, um, like the average, he's he's on more than the average Premier League salary. What's but the, the average? Premier the average League Premier League salary is three and a half million pounds a year. Uh, a year. Okay. And he's on about one hundred and forty a week. So one hundred forty. Okay. Weeks so about, like it about is seven, a dent about in his seven million, salary. Then. About seven million pounds a year. But even at, even before the Tories U turn on that tax cut thing, he was still only getting to take home about three point six or three point seven. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's, half it's, a year's income for the household then. Oh no, sorry. It'll be, no, it's, 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 it's almost a year's. Yeah, yeah, almost yeah. a year's post-tax right. income. He's not going to be delighted about that, really. Is he, he? he won't well, be thrilled. No, no, he won't be having a party. Oh, it's not yeah. like just doing a bit of online shopping and not telling the husband. Like, is it really a little bit of a bridge? For <laughs> Certainly him? not that. But like, we're not the only ones. Clearly, are who are still obsessed with this yeah. because you have you've had bidding wars for documentaries and tell-all, you know, dramatizations and stuff yeah. like that. Really is something. It it has lingered that little bit, hasn't it? Oh no, it has. And people will totally watch it. The three of us will nearly have to have a viewing party for the Rebecca Vardy. <laughs> I will watch all documentaries and drama series simultaneously, multi box. Come round to mine. We'll do pizza and wine, and we'll watch it. Like Rebecca, I think I'm more interested in Vardy's one than Colleen's one, though, because I feel like I really want to know what was the thought process behind all of this. Rebecca, Greg O'Shea meme. What was your thought process? And kind of. That. I want to know what her thought process was. I mean, she's she's signed a deal to do a tell-all documentary. She wants to claw back the money, obviously. So. That's her motive. But you think Colleen's doing one as well? Yeah, apparently so. The Guardian reported that she'd done a deal with Disney Plus. Plus, there's the guy, the guys behind uh, a very English scandal, that TV drama. Oh yeah, making a dramatization. I love that. For somebody who has gotten themselves in such bother, and I'm going to leave it on this point. Okay. Rebecca Vardy has spoken out and challenged Colleen Rooney. Uh, She's challenged Colleen Rooney to donate the 1.5 million pound payout to charity. Um, but no she has to pay her legal bills that's not how this works see look with this podcast started with questions of accountability and it's ending on questions of accountability <laughs> it's, it's questions of accountancy very, yeah accountancy yeah. and accountability there is every chance this picks up again <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> can't wait bring it we'll be right there with it yeah we can't wait but that's all we have time for on this episode of the group chat as much as we love to stay on yes. Sarah, Gavin thank you Richard thank, thank you very much indeed and thank you very much to Maxine to Killian and to Gareth for helping us through it. We'll be back next week. Bye.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.